Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. On the line with us is Amelia Pang. Amelia is a journalist of Uyghur descent, the author of a new book, Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. I read this op-ed in the New York Times that Amelia wrote January 10th, titled, It Took a Genocide for Me to Remember My Uyghur Roots. Let me recommend it to you. And this book made in China. It's remarkable. Amelia Pang, A-M-E-L-I-A-P-A-N-G dot com is Amelia's website. You can tweet her at Amelia P-A-N-G-G. And Amelia, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you could join us today for a lengthy interview. This is our Conversations with Great Minds Hour here. Here's a quote. The handwritten note found in a box of Halloween decorations purchased from an Oregon Kmart read, If you occasionally buy this product, please kindly resend this letter to the World Human Rights Organization. Thousands of people here who are under the persecution of the Chinese Communist Party government will thank and remember you. Uh, Tell us about the story behind that note. Yes, it was written by a political prisoner in China. He happened to practice Falun Gong, which is a group that is banned in China. China says it's a cult, but they also do have an extremely great ability to organize large protests and any kind of Mm. mass organizing like that is very frightening to authoritarian regimes. So, but Falun Gong is definitely not the only group that is ending up in these types of labor camps making our cheap goods. There's, like you mentioned earlier, the Uyghurs, ethnic minorities, and Tibetans. There are other types of Chinese dissidents, like pro-democracy activists, civil rights lawyers who defend these people, women's rights activists. A lot of these people are taking a very brave stand against an authoritarian regime, and unfortunately, many of them do end up in labor camps making our useless cheap goods. Many of the goods are quite trivial, such as Halloween decorations. You tell a story, I believe, about paper mushrooms. 
Yes, yes. Um, one of the products they were manufacturing in this particular labor camp in Liaoning, China, where this note was written, was these decorative paper mushrooms. And the particular product where the note was snuck in was were these um, styrofoam gravestones that were really cheaply made. But they were made under really horrendous conditions. The prisoners had to work 15 to 20 hours a day. They were often tortured if they didn't work fast enough to meet the quota that the labor camp needed to meet to satisfy our corporation's demand for how fast these products and how cheaply made these products are. Ultimately, my book is about tying our consumption habits and and the failures of our corporations to properly audit their Chinese suppliers to directly contributing to the rise and expansion of these labor camps. This is not something radical or new in China, it seems to me. I I spent the month of November in 1987 in the uh, Beijing International Acupuncture Teaching Hospital and learning acupuncture. Walked all over Beijing and, and one of the things I noticed was that everywhere I went, particularly when I was with any of the physicians from that hospital who were teaching me this, there were people following us. And this was before any American goods were being made in China. In fact, this was before Tiananmen Square. How far back does this, or what is the grounding of this authoritarian ideology. Was that something that just came out of the Cultural Revolution? Is that something that goes back a long way? Is there any foundation for this kind of paranoid neo-feudalism? Well, you give it a name. I I don't know what the name is for it. But is there any foundation for that in Confucian thought or Buddhist thought or anything that's part of of the heritage of China? Corvée labor certainly existed in ancient China, um, as it did in many parts of the world. Uh, you know, the, there were forced laborers uh, who built the Great Wall. You know, a lot of these uh, government projects um, were used by, by essentially slave labor. Um, but this kind of mass uh, detaining of political dissidents uh, for the use of their labor and the silencing of their dissent, uh, that really started to rise um, in the 1930s as the self-defined Chinese Communist Party was gaining control um, uh, and uh, building momentum uh, and capturing uh, more areas. And uh, and these earliest uh, Laogai camps, as they're called, were or earliest, the earliest forms of them were really based off of Soviet gulags. So they're pretty horrendous uh, facilities where there's a lot of torture, um, a heavy basis on political brainwashing of dissidents or, or just like just innocent people just to create fear um, um, and, and keep people in line. Uh, and these types of camps have only expanded and grown since the 1930s. And, and, and in a lot of cases, the, the torture uh, has gotten worse. How does the government maintain its legitimacy in the face of that? You know, the party does control the media. The media is, is state-owned. So... You don't really hear a lot of alternative reporting or news getting into China. If you want to access that kind of news, you have to go to great lengths to download a VPN, but that could be really risky. You could land in prison for a labor camp yourself or using a VPN that's not registered with the state. So it's very, very difficult for a large amount of Chinese people domestically to access uncensored information. So um, the way that the Chinese government portrays 
labor camps is. It's just it's just, it's just a prison. It's no it's no different from American prisons per se. And and while American prisons do have a lot of serious problems, and uh, the, the, um, the it's not uh, wide the scope of the of the labor. Uh, and the torturous conditions of the labor, it, it cannot really compare the two. Because it's just industrial strength. I mean, you, there's some god-awful labor camps in the United States. I mean, slavery is still legal in the United States if you've been convicted of a crime under the 13th Amendment. Um, yes. You look at some of these uh, southern states, and it's pretty gruesome. But China, is it a matter of scale, or is it, there, 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 there's also a difference of actual technique? I would say it's a matter of scale, mainly. Uh, Shane Bauer from Mother Jones wrote a great book called American Prison, which covers covers the, the forced labor system in American prisons. And, and according, what he found was that, you know, yes, back in the day, a lot of our prisons really did operate like labor camps in terms of direct connections with corporations. But ever since, unfortunately, ever since the... The war on drugs, just a massive spike in prisoners in the U.S. There's now not enough jobs for all of them. So there's the scale, uh, the amount of the people that are actually working in prisons that you can't compare to China. In China, everyone pretty much is doing manufacturing. I remember this one physician telling me the 19th century was the European century, the 20th century was the American century, the 21st century will be the Chinese century. And again, this was a year or two before Tiananmen Square. And yet it is. It seems, it seems very much that China has surpassed the United States in many ways economically and fixing to significantly surpass the United States. Where and when did that process begin and how? China's opening up its economies in, in the 1980s really um, contributed to that. But, you know, it, it has surpassed the United States in a lot of areas, but it, also in bad areas, including uh, income inequality. China has the largest number of billionaires in the world compared to any country. And yet you also have rural villagers who are so poor that they have to live in mud huts and their children cannot really go to school because they have to work in the fields. The disparity is very high. And this is the result of, what, tax policy? I mean, here in the United States, we can track the rise of the shift in wealth from the American middle class to the billionaire class right back to Ronald Reagan's massive tax cuts, which have been repeated by two Republican presidents since then. And every time we get tax cuts, we get these transfers of wealth from working people and poor people into the pockets of the top 1%. What's the process in China by which that happens? Even though they, they call themselves a communist party, there's really a lack of um, good social welfare programs actually helping the poor. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to access medical care or to really move up the, the social ladder. But for economically, I, I do want to talk about trade. In my book, I do cover how both establishment parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, historically have failed to address human rights during trade deals. When China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001 under the Clinton administration, human rights wasn't really a talking point. And, you know, when Trump had the trade war with China and trade negotiations, again, human rights was not really a talking point. And when human rights or labor rights are are not a talking point in these kinds of trade negotiations, then you do see a, a rise in just massive income inequality. Is there a specific part of or dimension of human rights that we should be raising more more frequently? 
even Bill Clinton didn't raise the issue of human rights when bringing China into the uh, World Trade Organization. And how American corporations are essentially complicit in this. Talk about American goods that are being made in China under these uh, brutal conditions uh, versus perhaps American goods. You know, you've got Apple constantly every year insisting, no, everything's fine. People aren't committing suicide at Foxconn. What is the reality here? What, how big is this issue? How much of what China is making for the American market is being done in ways that were it done in the United States, we would all be, I think, justifiably horrified. Apple's Foxconn factories are the actual conditions there are pretty disturbing. Uh, believe it or not, the labor camps are, are even worse, and it's very easy for a factory, a normal factory, an official supplier like Foxconn, to uh, secretly subcontract work to a labor camp. And, and what we're finding is, is a lot of um, all kinds of goods are from these forced labor facilities are entering to U.S. markets. Um, everything from the raw materials to make solar panels uh, to human hair extensions to a PPE equipment um, and, and a lot of the, the cotton. That is, uh, although that was recently banned, uh, which is a positive step, but you know, it, it's really a extremely wide range of products. I don't know what I don't know what I could safely say isn't uh, made or partly made in a labor camp. So, how do we? How is an American consumer to know? And 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 is this something that should be dealt with at the level of things like consumer boycotts, or is this something that really needs to be addressed systemically at the level of U.S. government policy and specifically trade policy? And if so, how? I think both. Uh, in terms of what consumers can do, we really need to create a cultural shift in the way that we consume these cheap goods or sometimes even expensive goods and create that kind of next level of transparency and sustainability. There's marketing buzzwords like sustainability, transparency, ethically sourced. Um, but those terms are essentially meaningless for a lot of these companies who have branded themselves around these terms. If you go to their websites and you look at their um, sustainability page or their corporate social responsibility page, um, a lot of times those pages say actually very little about how they're sourcing with their factories, what their relationships, what their factories are actually like, and what are the actual conditions in their factories? And what are the, what have they found in their audit reports? What do they look for in their audit reports? Those kind of details are, are rarely revealed. So I would say what consumers can do, my book does uh, cover this, uh, is the next time you go shopping online at your favorite brand store, just, just take a moment and look at their sustainability page or, or equivalent to that page and, and, and see if they're mentioning how they're actually auditing these factories, if they're actually doing enough to find out what the real conditions are like in the factory, or if they're contributing to any factors that may be incur deeply encouraging uh, the factory to outsource work to labor camps. Um, and and if you don't, and my book does cover exactly what are the key things you should be looking for. Um, and if the if the company isn't revealing them, then you can call them out on social media. Um, go on Facebook, mm -hmm. go on Twitter, and start asking them to. Uh, what are those it, key it's kind things? Of During my research for this book, I found out that a lot of the times the reason why a regular factory like Foxconn, although I'm not specifically talking about Foxconn, why they're outsourcing work 
to forced labor camps instead of having them made in-house or at another regular factory that is an approved subcontractor. The reason why is because the price that our corporation gave them to, to offer to pay for the products was so cheap, even if they are charging a lot of prices for consumers to pay, that the actual price that the corporation is offering these factories is so low that um, these factories cannot realistically make them for that cheap of a price. You know, we we have all these so-called standards for factories to not use prison labor, for there to be no child labor, for, for factory to follow environmental codes. But we're, uh, a lot of our corporations are actually setting up our factories to fail and not, and not successfully following the code. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're talking with Amelia Pang, the author of a new book, Made in China, an SOS letter and the hidden cost of America's cheap goods. Her website, AmeliaPang.com, her Twitter handle, AmeliaPang, P-A-N-G-G, the book, of course, uh, Made in China. Amelia, I wanted to, uh, for people who are really unfamiliar with the situation in China with regard to ethnic minorities and religious minorities and whatnot, can you give us a, a, a kind of broad scope view? Who are the Uyghurs? Who are the, you know, what does Han Chinese mean? What are, how is Chinese society essentially organized and categorized? And how does that all work in the context of economics, politics, and, and ultimately uh, repression? The Chinese government has been very much trying to create a single state race in order to create this kind of national unity. While that may not sound so bad, but in reality, how the policies affect people on the ground is that if you are not Chinese, what people normally think of as Chinese, not just the Han majority, you have a very difficult life in China. Right now we're talking about the Uyghurs. They're a Turkic minority group with darker skin, with very, very different facial features uh, from, from from Han Chinese people. And they um, historically have had difficulty finding employment. They face a lot of discrimination in various ways. But in recent years, living conditions of the Uyghurs have gotten a lot worse, and that is closely tied with trade because there's just been a mass rounding up of Uyghurs based solely on, on their ethnicity, putting them in labor camps. They're essentially pretty much making our cheap and sometimes expensive goods. You said that they're trying to create a single 
race across China. I mean, this in order to create national unity. That, of course, was Adolf Hitler's big idea as well. And I understand that there's actually not only are they putting Uyghurs in prison camps and and other minorities, and I'm curious who those other minorities are, but also there is a campaign of forced sterilization and birth control. Do I have that right? Actually, uh, the U.S. government has has called what's happening uh, to the Uyghurs a, a genocide because that that does meet the UN's de- one of the UN's definitions of genocide, which is uh, suppression of, of birth. Um, China's forced abortions and forced massive amounts of forced sterilization in these camps and even outside of the camps um, has caused, an, I believe, an 84 percent decline in birth rates in two of the largest Uyghur prefectures in China, two of the, two of the largest Uyghur, Uyghur majority areas. It's no longer an issue of, of cultural genocide. The amount of Uyghurs who, who are being born has literally, is coming to a halt. Pretty remarkable. Part of your book is a little autobiographical. Would you, would you care to share with our audience how you came to this understanding, how, how this came, all came to your attention, how, how this concern became significant f- enough for you that you thought it was worth doing the research and, and all the hard work and writing a book about? Yes, uh, my New York Times essay was autobiographical about my fam- how my family lost their Uyghur heritage. Even though we are Chinese, Han Chinese mixed with Uyghur, um, it is just so difficult to identify as Uyghur in China. Um, but uh, but the book is, is not actually autobiographical. It's it's, um, nice. it's it's more about the different types of people who are their stories, the people who are actually detained and working in the labor camps currently. Is there a particular story that you'd like to share? You know, while the, a lot of the book is about supply chains and uh, corporate um, complicity, uh, you know, I, I did want to tell human stories so that people actually read it and find it not not mm-hmm. so not so heavy. It does follow one forced labor story predominantly. His name is Suni, and he, you know, he was a really intelligent person. He went to college. He uh, during the eighties he went to college, and when China was opening up, and he became very interested in uh, Western philosophy, like Hegel. I really try to show like the the process of how he turned into from someone that once contemplated Hegel uh, into this um, this mechanism in. A labor camp, uh, just doing repetitive actions, making our cheap goods, our cheap and trivial goods. Um, and he was how Uyghur. he was actually not Uyghur; he was Han Chinese, but but uh, but uh, but uh, he was a political dissident. Um, and he just how emotionally and spiritually he died before his physical body uh, fully deteriorated. Um, and, and you know he he was not so so different from you and I. He had dreams. He had a wife that he loved deeply, and this like really um, moving love story of how how they ended up together against all odds. Um, and, and so my book is ultimately about the, about really the human cost of our cheap goods and and what and the actionable steps, um, even simple actionable steps that we can take as consumers to address this. How did Sonny's life end? He did manage to leave the labor camp. He tried to escape to another country and 
restart a new life there. But unfortunately, his health was poor, and he had many health problems due to just all the torture and starvation and lack of access to medical care that, uh, that he, he experienced during his years in prison. How have American companies responded to the revelations in your book? Um, they have not provided a much meaningful response. For instance, a meaningful legislation, if it passed, that could actually push the Chinese government to rethink its policies towards Uyghurs um, is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And it's currently um, stalling in, in Congress at the moment, um, although the Senate has, has uh, taken it up again. Uh, what that would do is it would ban all products coming from Xinjiang. And not just some products like, or certain kinds of products like the cotton and tomato products that are currently banned. Um, it would ban everything. And that is a huge blow to China uh, trade-wise uh, because uh, the, China has invested a lot of money into building up Xinjiang as, as a key transportation transportation hub uh, for China's Belt and Road policy, which is a trillion-dollar economic uh, strategy. They, they, it's, it's really too big to fail in China's eyes. Um, and so taking a significant kind of trade away from China could really, really push China to re rethink, the, revisit these policies. Um, but unfortunately, our corporations like Apple are, and Nike are... are uh, they, they're lobbying uh, Congress to, to not get this passed or, or to significantly revise the legislation. Um, Apple alone spent $90,000 lobbying, on lobbying to, to not get this specific legislation passed. Uh, so although our corporations may release press releases that say they have dropped specific suppliers that are using Uyghur force, that we know Uyghur forced labor. In reality, they are, you know, still spending a lot of money so that they, to allow, so the government will allow them to continue to use Uyghur forced labor. What are the political dynamics of the anti-Uyghur forced labor goods into the United States legislation that you identified before? Is this partisan or is this purely, you know, which corporations are own which politicians? You know, how can people who are listening who might want to see that past participate in helping that past? What, what's going on with this? It's supposed to be bipartisan. I mean, nobody wants to be supporting forced labor. Um, but uh, and, and it passed in the House uh, with strong bipartisan, bipartisan support. I'm sorry, it's supposed to be bipartisan. It passed in the House with strong bipartisan support. Um, um, but unfortunately, um, after it passed in the House, uh, maybe, the, maybe the legislators knew that they didn't actually want this to go much further, and, and it hasn't really um, been moved forward in the, in the Senate in a significant way. And you do have companies like uh, Apple, Nike, and Coca-Cola spending large amounts of money uh, lobbying legislators to, to heavily revise this legislation or not get it passed at all. Um, Apple alone spent $90,000 lobbying this legislation alone. We're having kind of a, an awakening in America. The 1619 Project, I think, is kind of a, a high watermark of people, in particular white people in the United States, waking up to the genuine horrors of 
slavery in the United States and, and how extensive the American economy depended on slave labor in order to operate. Is there a way to translate that horror? I mean, you know, we are now decrying slave labor in the United States, and yet we seem to be condoning it in China. Do you, do you see a, a movement to, to conflate those two? Yes, that horror, it's a valid horror, and it absolutely needs to uh, translate to um, the, the weaker slave labor that's happening in China today. Um, a lot of the Uyghurs in Hortetain and Xinjiang have to work in cotton fields. You know, that there's definitely um, some disturbing parallels uh, to to African American slave labor, uh, although not the same um, and, and very different historical context. Um, but you know, I, I just want to go back to how, how this is still um, the, the slave labor of, of the Uyghurs and beyond the Uyghurs of all different types of ethnic minorities and political distance are, are vastly contributing to to, to trade. Um, although Trump's trade war started in 2018, um, according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, the U.S. was the was still the fastest growing export market for the Uyghur region um, uh, between 2019. Between April 2019 and April 20th, the, the, the export uh, in that region grew by more than 25% um, in terms of exports that went to the U.S. So although the U.S. is has kind of presented itself as a China hawk, in reality, we are still buying a lot of goods made by literally slave labor in Xinjiang. Remarkable. Remarkable. And Amelia, you know, we were talking about how Americans are quick to decry the horrors of slave labor when it happens here in the United States. And obviously there are a lot of differences between the kind of chattel slavery that was practiced here and what's going on in China. But, but nonetheless, we're perfectly willing to purchase all kinds of stuff made by slave labor in China and presumably in other countries as well. But, uh, you know, we're specifically talking about China here. I saw a piece in the, in the uh, Financial Times uh, earlier this week saying that um, it's widely believed that Europe has now surpassed the United States as an export market for China. I, I can't confirm that. But to what extent is Europe responding to these kinds of things? And, and is it a whole, whole of the European Union response or do we see country by country responses or is not much happening? different responses country by country. Some are doing better than others, but for the most part, the European trade deals have, have, have not really touched on human rights either in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and, and yes, regardless of where China is uh, exporting this product, these products, uh, with the state of globalization today, um, it almost doesn't matter. China could be exporting a product to Europe, but then Europe can export it to the U.S., um, and and, and but, but what matters is that there is hard evidence that um, products made in these labor camps are being exported um, to people like us. When I was doing my research in China, I visited labor camps uh, who had that had innocent names like pretrial detention centers and, and drug detox centers, but they were essentially labor camps. I went to the sites. I spoke to the guards who confirmed they were prisoners inside doing manufacturing work. Um, and I, I told them I was from an overseas company that wanted to buy products from them. And, 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 the, and the guards at, at the camp said, yes, absolutely, we can send you products and make products for you. Um, 
no problem. Um, I spent a lot of time following the trucks that left these camps uh, to see exactly which exporters they were working with. And they were working with all kinds of exporters um, from, you know, a factory that made uh, pet products uh, like the nylon pet collars uh, to uh, even an Apple supplier, an official Apple supplier. When you look up the addresses of these factories um, and, and when you look at the customs records, uh, there's that show exactly what these products were sending and where uh, they were going all over the world. Even once they were going to Taiwan, um, sometimes they ultimately end up going to the U.S. and said, made sensei and said this is made in Taiwan even though um, there were definitely parts of it manufactured uh, in, in China. Um, and so so these products are ending up in our stores, regardless of uh, whether if we're mostly the ones that are China is being exported, exporting to the U.S. or not. The story of a Saudi, Mr. Khashoggi, being murdered by Saudi Arabia, even though he lived in the United States, is kind of well known an example of state retribution against a whistleblower. Are you on the receiving end of problems as a consequence of writing this book about China? I think China, fortunately, is a very different country from Saudi Arabia. There are a lot of foreign correspondents and, and journalists uh, in China who are uncovering these types of scenarios. And as long as you are not a Chinese national, um, you, you do have a lot of protections when it comes to China. I mean, you do face risk. You can get arrested, and that often does happen to journalists. You can get beat up uh, when you are arrested. You can get detained, and they, they try to scare you and waste your time. And you can get kicked out of the country. But so far, we haven't seen um, um, foreign journalists getting executed. But it certainly does happen to, right. to the domestic journalists. For the folks in Hong Kong who are protesting the suppression of, of human rights in Hong Kong, are they in, going directly to labor camps, or are they going to prison? I mean, is, is this just more fodder for this industry? I would say, say it is more fodder for the industry, uh, whether somebody is sentenced or not. You know, pre-trial detention centers are often manufacturing facilities where people can be held indefinitely without even having gone through a trial. And people who go through a trial are going to prisons where the conditions are pretty horrific and, and everybody has to do manufacturing work for uh, 20 hours a day sometimes, you know. Uh, so, yes, the people, the citizens of Hong Kong are very much in danger of, of, of becoming forced laborers who make our goods. Amazing. Amelia Pang, the book is Made in China, a Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. Amelia, thank you for dropping by today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. My pleasure, and I wish you the very best with your book. Dennis is on the line with us, the executive director of Common Cause Georgia. CommonCause.org slash Georgia is the website, the Twitter handle, Common Cause GA. Anna, welcome to the program. I understand the Georgia legislature has uh, some brand new voter suppression tricks up their sleeve. Tell us about this. Yes. Uh, thank you, Tom, for having me. So this cycle, we have seen a lot of things happen with voter suppression and voter fraud narratives. And what we see happening in our legislature as of this week, this is systematic voter suppression. We have seen 
over 40 anti-voting uh, bills that have come through our legislature. We've seen a lack of transparency um, with notifying the public of these uh, bills. As of yesterday, we had a uh, our House ominous, we like to call it our ominous bill, that's appeared. But within a two-hour notice, we actually had a committee hearing on that bill that's actually also taking place today. So those are some of the antics that we're seeing um, with systematic voter suppression in Georgia as of today. Do the Democrats have the power to stop any of this legislation? And, and can you give us any of the details of exactly how the Republicans with these new laws are intending to suppress the votes? So with the suppression of the vote, the Democrats will most likely be able to add amendments to these bills, but we do have super majorities in our House and our Senate on these bills. Um, that's the compositional makeup of our legislature. And what we've seen this week is that there have been votes along party lines. With some of the bills, we see restrictions to eliminate no-excuse absentee uh, uh, voting, which is actually a system that was in place by Republicans 15 years ago and has actually been working well. And we have seen previous to this election cycle that more Republicans have actually used this uh, as their voting um, mechanism over Democrats. We also see things as eliminating um, drop boxes, which were critically critically needed uh, due to what's going on down here with COVID, because we're actually still a hot spot down here. So the pandemic hasn't died down um, down here. We also see restrictions like needing to have a photo ID to um, submit your absentee ballots. We see restrictions of having a chief czar of our elections down here where counties will not have uh, the ability to be able to conduct their elections on their own. But this is something that taxpayers, my dollars, will actually have to pay for, but we will not have representation uh, with this czar. So these are some of the things that we're seeing. There are many more. Um, there are many more bills um, as well that are going through the legislature. I read that there were one of the provisions that was specifically targeting African-American voters in Georgia was making it illegal to vote on Sunday and, uh, I don't know, claiming some kind of Christian principle there. But that that the souls to the polls thing, you know, uh, um, yes. people go to church and then and then heading down to the to the polling station has been going on for a long, long time. I, I lived in Georgia for, I think, 13 years. You know, I mean, and that was back in the in the 80s. It was going on. So this yes. is this is this is pretty precision targeting, is it not, of, of African American voters? It's, it's definitely precision targeting of voters of color, of people who are um, just now starting uh, to vote. They could be first voters. It's definitely creating a culture of voter suppression is creating a culture of efficacy in our election systems and a distrust of our election systems down here. We've heard from our Secretary of State that there literally was no fraud and no tampering of our elections this cycle. We also heard from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that there were no instances of fraud and there's no instances of tampering. And so now we see, because we've had 
mass people who've gone out to do Sunday voting, mass people who are using drop boxes throughout the week, mass people who are actually requesting a vote by mail um, ballot, and also people who are becoming poll workers to actually be a part um, of this election process. We now see these types of attacks because there's certain folks in Georgia who feel as if their election was stolen or there had to be fraud because of the outcome. And so now we see these attacks and these rollbacks. You know, I think that there are Republican voters who believe this line of whatever you want to call it, that Donald Trump is shoveling out that, that the election was stolen from him. But I don't think that you have any Republican legislators. I mean, they're, they've, they're familiar with the process. They know who Brad, Brad Raffson Perger is. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's the guy who oversaw throwing hundreds of thousands of people off the voting rolls, you know, keeping maintaining a fine tradition right. after Brian Kemp. Um, uh, right. And, and he, he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with this election. Uh, I, they, I think they're just saying, hey, you know, when black people vote, uh, you know, Republicans lose power. And so we're going to stop black people from voting. I mean, they, this has been, you know, replace the word Republicans with the word white racists. And, and this has been the, the strategy in Georgia since the beginning of Reconstruction. Since Reconstruction, it definitely falls in line with the 1980s Southern strategy. And recently, I was actually reading the uh, Georgia Republican voting report, and I was actually matching it to the different ensembles of these uh, anti-voting bills that we have. And it definitely targets um, our different types of community. I'm a, I'm a woman of color. I'm a, I'm a black woman. I'm a mother. And I think about why I go to vote and how I go to vote and what mechanisms I use to actually go to vote, which means that because I am a working mom, I have to make time throughout my day to figure out when I actually can go to a ballot box. I vote in person because I want to take my daughter so she can understand the voting process and also get to know our precinct managers, who are some people who actually live in my community, because we do believe as a community to be engaged in our elections is to actually be a poll worker, be a part of it. Um, So I think about those things. I think about the rollbacks that we're having and then what we have coming down the line. We have reapportionment coming down the line. So this is definitely an onslaught of trying to restrict the power of the people and the voice of the people. And we know with the election that we had the high turnout that we have seen um, in Georgia. We had over 7 million registered voters. And each of our elections, our general election and our Senate runoff, we had over 4 million voters vote in our elections. And now we're seeing these different types of attacks when, like you said, the Republicans know that there was nothing that wrong that happened with our elections. Our secretary Uh, of state has said it. Our GBI has said it. So why are we instituting these Jim Crow suit and tie policies now? Would H.R. 1, do you know, if that legislation passes the House and Senate and gets signed into law, would that roll back or push back any of these things that the Georgia Republicans are proposing? It actually would give us more provisions and protections here in Georgia. So we are definitely telling our members, definitely telling our communities to rally, cry up. We need H.R. 1 passed because we need extra oversight in our elections here in Georgia and more provisions and protections for the voters here in Georgia. 
Yeah, H.R. 1, also called the For the People Act. It would clean up a lot of the election craziness around the United States. Anna Davis, Executive Director of Common Cause Georgia, commoncause.org slash Georgia, Common Cause GA on Twitter. Anna, thanks so much for dropping by today and keep up the great work. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Liano in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Are you the guy that I was talking about this morning that uh, David Sirota wrote up in his Daily Poster? Yes, I am. That's exactly right. Hey, hey, uh, Liano, let's see, your last name is uh, Sharon or Sharon? Liano Sharon, yeah. David was writing that you were one of the lead guys among the Michigan insurgents who rose up and took over the Democratic Party, or are trying to rise up and take over the Democratic Party in Michigan. You guys have an election tomorrow. Tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, we uh, we started back in uh, in, in 2016, uh, and we've been making great strides uh, uh, every year since then. And uh, in uh, uh, in uh, 2017, we uh, we won about we won about uh, around 40 positions on the state central committee. Um, then we we, uh, we we won a few more uh, uh, in 2019. Um, in 2020. Uh, Myself and uh, and and another uh, uh, another young woman named uh, Zara Abbas uh, got elected to the Democratic National Committee. Um, so we, we won uh, a third of the elected positions to that to that. So we've had a number of victories along the way. They covered they they, they covered some of that in the uh, Daily Poster article and David Schroeder's article. Uh, there's a bunch more. Uh, there's a, an article that I wrote on the. Uh, on the uh, progress report uh, for the uh, political revolution in Michigan on my blog there that you mentioned, Michigan Progressive. And right mm-hmm. now we're organizing as uh, 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 Mich- uh, my solidarity, misolidarity.org, um, where we are, um, where we've been recruiting people um, to uh, participate in the Democratic Party and uh, to run in the uh, party elections, uh, which, as you say, are coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow we will elect. Um, we will elect 172 delegates and 172 alternates to the uh, uh, Michigan Democratic Party State Central Committee, um, and uh, uh, we're we're we are running um, uh, over 100 different uh, uh, different candidates across the state. We're, we, we've got candidates from Ironwood all the way over, almost in Wisconsin, down to Detroit. 
um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we're 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 phone banking, we're text banking, we're we're sending emails, we're doing everything we can to get the word out to Michigan Democrats. If you are a member of the Michigan Democratic Party, and you have been a member for 30 days or at least since January 21st. Um, you have a right to vote in, in, in the party, and uh, you should come out and vote for the solidarity slate. According to David's article, there are about 10,000 members of the Democratic Party in Michigan. To become a party member is more than just registering as a Democrat, correct? What's the process in a, in a nutshell? That, that, that's correct. Uh, to become a member, to become a member of the party and a voting member, you must you have to you have to actually join the party. You can join the party through mysolidarity.org and mysolidarity.org. Uh, you can also join the party for free on their website, though it's it's difficult to find where the free link is. Uh, but it is there. Um, but you can join for free through our group, and uh, uh, we will uh, we will we will manage all of the uh, all 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 of that getting getting you signed up. We will uh, we are uh, set up to send you updates on when there's going to be a vote, uh, when there's going to be something happening, et cetera. Got it. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, so and and so this is this is all at mi as in Michigan mi solidarity.org. I think the most important question I have for you, Liano Sharon, for people who are not in Michigan who are listening, mm-hmm. how do yeah. they do what you did? Well, the, the the key thing is to think like like they said in the article actually on the Daily Post is think institutionally, think about how do these things really work. What I've discovered in the Michigan Democratic Party is that the vast majority of people in the party have no idea how the rules work or what the rules say. They're doing things by rote. They're doing things the same way they did them before, the same way their predecessors did them, and they're not questioning any of that. And why should they? Because their predecessors presumably knew how, they, how this was done, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not, the vast majority of people in the quote-unquote establishment, I don't have any problem with them. They're just doing what they think is the right thing. Uh, the problem is there are a few people who know that these are not the right things to do. Who know this specifically, and there are, and and, and as a result, as a result of that, they tell the, the rest of the establishment, "Hey, this is you know, this is how you should do things." They go along with that. And the, so, that, step one is to weaponize know. the rules, right? right? Know the rules and weaponize the rules. It wouldn't wouldn't a preceding step be to get as many progressives as you can to become members of the party, and even better, to become precinct committee persons? So that's a, that's an interesting question. So, for example, in, in in Michigan, precinct committee persons don't have any any more power other than they don't have to uh, go through a 30-day uh, period where they can vote. Um, uh, in, in Michigan, anybody who is 16 years of age or older and a resident of Michigan can join the Michigan Democratic Party by filling out the form, and uh, you get a full. Okay, you get so a that's going to vary from state to state. But but right. still, getting right. inside the party, whether you whether you become a precinct committee person or simply a voting member of the party, and you, and you need to figure out how how it works in your state, is uh, job one. Job two: find the find the rules, read them, and if you can, weaponize them. Any other advice, uh, Liano, uh, Sharon? We have thirty seconds. Sure. So I would just I would just say that that um, you got you show up and do it. Don't let anybody mm-hmm. tell you you can't. Don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't run. Don't let anybody tell you that that you shouldn't do whatever you whatever's uh, on your mind that you want to go out there and do in the party. Go and do it, and you'll find people along the way that will do it with you. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of progressives out there, and and you know we need to be coming out of the woodwork and and taking over the Democratic Party on a state by state basis. Liano Sharon, um, once again, your websites. 
My Solidarity, misolidarity.org and michiganprogressive.com. Great. Michiganprogressive.com, MI as in Michigan, misolidarity.org. Uh, Liano Sharon with uh, all of the above. Liano, thank you. It's great talking with you. And welcome back, Dave in Valley Ford, California. Hey, Dave, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Um, I just want to continue your rant on Republicans admitting states into the union. Mm -hmm. And you got to Benjamin Harrison, and Benjamin Harrison, in, uh, you, you talked about him admitting North and South Dakota. Right, I think it was 1898, as I recall. Right, November 2nd, 1898, he admitted North and South Dakota. On right. November 8th, 1898, he admitted Montana. On November oh, really? 11th, on November 11th, 1898, he admitted Washington State. Then, eight months later, on July the 3rd, 1890, he admitted Idaho. And then on July the 10th, 1890, he admitted Wyoming. So he admitted six states in eight months. We went from being, when, when Benjamin Harrison started, we had 38 states. And by the end of his first year in office, we had 44 states. Can you send me a link to that, Dave, please? I just got it out of my world almanac. <laughs> I don't really? have internet type Really? Of okay, I'll, I can do my I can do research. That, that's fine. I'll I'll dig into that. Thank you for that. And I'm guessing pretty much every single one of those states was a Republican state, right? In the election where Benjamin Harrison beat Grover Cleveland, mm-hmm. he he was a minority president. He won the electoral vote, but not the popular vote. I heard many years ago that Harrison did this, and he said that the Republicans would control the Senate forever after he did this. So I wow. don't know if that's true or not, but um, well, it makes sense. I mean, these were back back then. The main schism. I mean, this was the end of the 19th century. The main schism had been. I mean, you know, the Republicans had largely purged themselves of the so-called radical Republicans. But they still, you know, the Democratic Party at that point in time was still the party of the South, the party of segregation. That was the year of Plessy versus Ferguson, I think, or maybe it was two years earlier. That was 1896. Plessy versus Ferguson was then the law of the land. And the Republicans were the, well, by that point, they were no longer the rights for black people party. That, that had been blown up really after uh, 1876 with the Hayes uh, Fascinating. I'm going to have to look into that. One of the cool things about writing these things over at Medium.com is that I can continuously edit them. I can go in and change them. So I will take that information and add to it, and and I'll look for that Benjamin Harrison quote because that's a juicy one. Thank you, Dave. You're welcome. Thank you very much for that. Uh, It it is uh, such a privilege. Dave, thank you very much for the call. It is such a privilege to hang out with you guys every day because I learn as much as I teach. I, you know, and, and I've always kind of thought of myself as a teacher, as, as somebody who, whose job was to kind of bring, you know, bring something, bring fire. And yet you bring fire to me constantly. I, I'm so grateful. Debbie in Oakland, California. Hey, Debbie. Yeah, I was wondering, is there anything new about missing panic buttons? I love you. Yeah, from Iona Presley's office. I'm wondering, too. I mean, I've, I've got so many unanswered questions about what happened around January 6th and where her panic buttons went is one that I don't have. I, I have no idea. And I've not seen anything in the media about it. 
I can understand during the impeachment, but I thought maybe, you know, now that it's over, they might pick up the story again. Yeah. Well, this is this is where I think that we need a serious prosecution. I don't want to see a 9-11 style commission. I'm going to be writing about that over the weekend. I, Warren Commission, the 9-11 Commission, in my opinion, the Warren Commission, you know, was designed to basically whitewash what happened in that assassination. And the 9-11 Commission was designed to to reduce public consciousness of the role that Saudi Arabia played in 9-11, or Saudis played, shall we say, in 9-11. They're political groups. And what we need are, are a grand jury and serious prosecutors. And one of the questions they should be asking, and I'd be astonished if the FBI isn't looking at this right now, Debbie, is what did happen to those panic buttons. I'd also like to know what's going on with the, I think it's now there are up to 35 police officers among the Capitol Police who are under investigation. Some of them were having selfies taken with these uh, with these uh, traitors who, who attacked the Capitol. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, opened the gates and let them in and seemed quite pleased about that. Um, I, it's just like there, there are so many unanswered questions. Debbie, thank you for raising that that really need to be answered. And they need to be answered not in the context of, oh, here's the information. They need to be answered in the context of, we're going to nail the, 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 the SOBs who did this stuff. Right? We need to track these people down and, and hold them accountable. That, that, I mean, that's the essence of justice. Michael in Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, Michael, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? One issue with all this coverage about Texas and, and all of the tragedy in this over the last week, other than uh, Brad Friedman yesterday on his Green News report pointed out the U.S. military. My wife is a great researcher, and she looked it up this morning. There are over 200,000 active-duty U.S. military in the state of Texas, 10 major Whoa. installations. Uh-huh. They, they generate 70 billion dollars in GDP for the state of Texas. Wow. Now, 200,000 active duty military, that's Air Force, Navy, Army, and Marines, and probably Coast Guard. Uh, So what's your point? That's got to be close to one-fifth of our military that has been sidelined that has been out of action for a week. What I would suggest is that- Well, do you, do you know that? I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these military bases actually did winterize because they are under federal control. Uh, that's federal property. And uh, the whole point of Texas getting their own grid was to was to avoid federal regulation. But the the military bases, I'm guessing they have, they have uh, power and water and everything else. Do you know otherwise? Uh, not necessarily. They hmm. normally buy their electricity, at least off the grid, off the, grid, off the local yeah. grid. Yeah, and it does make sense. I would so think they would have I'm backup saying, capability. What, but anyway, yeah, they, they do have some backup, but, but who knows? But what I'm suggesting is next week, after all the, the electricity is back on, the power is back on, mm-hmm. that the Secretary of Defense call up the governor and tell him that uh, first off demand the winterization of of all the utilities 
at no additional cost to us. With those 10 major installations, we have got to be the, you and I, the U.S. government has got to be one of the largest consumers of energy in the state of Texas. If they don't do that at no cost to us, then we're going to start redeploying troops to other states that do take care of us. Yeah, although that One process is of our military really being expensive. out of commission, that is that is astronomical. Yeah. You know, I hope I hope China and Russia haven't been looking at that. You know, it would be the perfect I think time. You can count on their you, having. You, you done see so. what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, if, if Democrats were running Texas, you would have you would have Republicans running around hysterical on television right now, going, "Oh my God, here come the here come the Russians, or here come the Chinese. They're gonna exactly. they're going to attack us." Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Greg Abbott didn't just go ahead. Yeah, yeah. If if we started redeploying our troops, I mean, Fort Fort Hood, Texas, two army divisions and a core headquarters in yeah. one base. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got a giant Air Force installation in San Antonio. You got San stuff Antonio all over the state. And yep. The Navy. No, and I'm, Christie. I'm, I'm yeah. familiar with it. I, I, you know, yeah. Michael, thank you for the call. Uh, spot on. Ten minutes before the hour. We'll be right back. Phil in Wooddale, Illinois. Hey, Phil, we have a minute to the break. A representative from Mississippi, Benny Thompson, who was talking about uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, uh, basically yep. saying, no. oh, you know about that? Yeah, no more Trump. Uh, he can't run for office because he, he led an insurrection. And, and, and I'm totally down with that. I'm, I, I think it's great. Congress needs to do it. I think it's great, too. I just basically then want to remind your listeners that if they write to their congressmen or senators or even just call them and, and say, hey, a simple majority, a simple vote of a majority in the House and the Senate will make this thing happen. And it might be our That's correct. Short, hallelujah. That's correct. And Donald Trump Thanks. will not be able to run for office, which means he won't be able to run fundraising appeals to line his pockets like he did after he lost the election. And then in, in a two month period, raised over four hundred million dollars all of which is sitting in his checking account down in Florida right now, as far as we can tell. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 